0: You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of -of end-of-life care. And now, here is your host, Saul.
1: Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of The Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I'm Saul Ebema. And today I have an amazing guest here. She's an author. She's written two books, uh, Dr. Linita Ip and Matthew. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Could you give us a little background? Where did you grow up?
2: So I was born and raised in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, and both of my parents are native Carolites from Kerala, India.
1: So you've written two books. Your first book is Life, To Be Given Back Again, To Whence It Came. Could you give us the motivation for that book?
2: Sure. So both books actually stem from my doctoral dissertation. Uh, So I was lucky enough to find a publisher who wanted to publish the work that I've done. And uh, the title actually is from a poem that my father wrote. So I took the first line and the last line of a poem that he wrote, and it seemed to suit the content of the book. A year before entering my doctoral dissertation, um, writing my thesis, I lost my father. And so I've done my doctorate in education. So as a teacher, I noticed that the gap in education is that we don't have grief work uh, or even. The understanding of companioning grief in the classroom. So we're not teaching students what to do when they have to approach a loss, any kind of loss. So typically I deal with bereavement, which is the death loss, but then students also go through a variety of non-death losses. And so I decided to kind of tackle that. So, how can we bring grief work into the classroom? Mm. So, I'm a mental health support teacher, but I'm also an English teacher. I teach grade nine English, and I know that students love storytelling, and I love storytelling. (laughs) And so, that became my avenue to bring the work into schools. And so, the first book uh, talks about all of the research, it's um, a first person point of view of what prolonged grief looks like because that is what I suffered after I lost my dad and so I go through the physical social psychological behavioral and spiritual aspects of loss so the reactions and responses to grief that I had it's written in a very relatable way Um, so not only did I do academic research but I interviewed and talked to many had many conversations with grievers to make sure that even though I was telling my story I wasn't only telling my story yeah. Uh, so I do believe we, we heal grief by finding relatability. And so the first book walks the reader through the research of grief, uh, grief theories and models, the effect of trauma on the brain, and then how can storytelling help the brain organize and process loss.
1: And it's indeed well written. I like how you do it. And there are three important parts, uh, parts mm-hmm. to the book. The first is the telling and you speak sure. about the invisibility of grief. Could you mm-hmm. talk more about that?
2: Sure. So when I lost my dad, I was 31 years old. And I think because we don't teach people how to navigate grief, yeah. uh, a lot of my age group, my friends, didn't really know how to support me. And so I, my social circle essentially minimized down to one. <laughs> and uh, I was quite shocked by this. And so I wrote what is called an autoethnography. So I'm evoking emotion in the reader while observing the cultural interactions that occur for a phenomenon. So, because I was born and raised in Canada, Mm. but my parents are from India, I could examine grief from a Western and Eastern lens. And so, on the Western side of my life, um, the social support after the funeral essentially fell away. Mm. But on the Eastern side of my life, because we, embedded rituals into our grieving I had communal support um, through my family in India and so I noticed the difference that it had on me and my healing and so I wanted to get that message across that we as a social human being we have to grieve communally and many researchers will agree the same and if you don't have a strong support system it actually can affect your mental health and it can affect how effectively you grieve, and also the the length of your bereavement. And so, you know, we know that we grieve for the rest of our lives, for the one that we lost, but we don't have to live with the trauma and suffering of it. And so to heal the trauma and suffering, we need a strong social support system.
1: And you mentioned something really important, that immediately after the funeral, uh, that mm-hmm. social support begin to diminish. And right. uh, it becomes really challenging and Many people deal with that, but they don't pron- you know, it's not as pronounced as you put it. And you had the privilege of navigating it within two different cultures. Can you tell us why do you think that the, uh, the support system diminishes in the Western context after the funeral?
2: I think we've become very independent in the way that we live. We're very strong standing in our own. We also want to rush through these emotions very quickly. It's very very (laughs) rare that someone sits with the emotion of suffering. No one wants to suffer. Whereas, um, you know, in other cultures, I think they've deconstructed suffering much differently. And so I feel I felt here that we are rushing to cure our grief, as I say in the book, rather than slowing down and healing our grief. So it's two very different things. And so we're seeing in modern North American cultures, we're seeing a lot of prescription of antidepressants for grief. We're seeing a lot of people numbing, showing numbing behaviors. And um, we're seeing a lot of people just stifle it and keep the emotions inside. And so as a teacher, that immediately... uh, it produces at-risk behavior in youth, right? And Hmm. so if they weren't engaging in these types of behaviors before they start to begin to. And so I'd like to hopefully uh, support kids in school so that even as they flourish into adults, they have the coping mechanisms to deal.
1: So what did you find about the Eastern perspective on mourning that was different from the Western culture?
2: Uh, Definitely the, the ritualistic aspect. For instance, in my experience, I'm an Indian Christian. And so we actually have rituals in place for one full year. So the very night that my dad died, our community comes into the house. Even though we were in Canada, they filled our home. There's prayers we have to do the very first night. Uh, Those prayers go on for seven days, the 40th day and the year anniversary. And you know, it just, it's not necessarily a focus on religion that actually no matter what religion you belong to in India it's a very similar the prayers are very similar it's very cyclical and it has to wrap up all the way until the end of the year so you have to meet as a community on these specific milestones no matter what religion you belong to and uh, so for me to have these in place you know it's, it's it was kind of like I felt on the Western side, they want to forget right away. <laughs> yes. On the Eastern side, it's it's bringing it up to remind you that something has happened and you must deal with it.
1: So could you walk us through uh, the rituals that happen in that period of that one year period of mourning?
2: The number 40 is very, uh, it's a very spiritual number in mm-hmm. in uh, in more than one culture, I would say. Uh, but essentially for us, it marks the ascension of Christ. So the very first night that my father died, uh, my mother and I, we spread a white bed sheet across his bed. So for 40 days, uh, a fasting initiates. So there's no eating meat. Um, there's no celebrating. You cannot consume alcohol. Uh, and no one can sleep in that bed for those 40 days. Uh, because our family is very tight knit, we went for the full year like that yeah and i did specifically um because your 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 body is also purifying at the same time right your grief it releases a lot of toxins into your physical aspect like i said before the social aspect the psychological aspect and so you are trying to make sure that you're not also adding toxins so that your body can heal and we also believe spiritually that you're purifying yourself so that your loved one's soul is transitioning accordingly. Mm. And uh, it's a, it's very important to adhere to this and to honor your loved one through this disciplined fasting. Yeah. And then, as I mentioned before, there's cyclical prayers. Uh, we have to do charitable contributions. So grief is very humbling. You have to remind yourself that in death, we're all equal. Mm. And so in memory of your loved one you go out and you support those who are in need and then the communal aspect of grieving making sure you're with the community making sure that they're taking care of you um, and that you know it's a it's a way of strengthening those ties and then the last would be sacred ceremony so we had certain things that we have to do with our hands so donating items to the church, but making sure the priest receives them from your hands. So there's there was a few things that we had to do uh, on those specific days. And so after my father died and we buried him in Canada on the Saturday, I was leaving for India by that Monday. And then I returned to India the following, for the right before the year anniversary.
1: It looks like um, as I talk to you and I see you, it looks like those rituals really contributed to a lot of healing.
2: Absolutely. And in the book, I I end that chapter off with the disclosure of my rituals are not to tell other people how they should do things, but it was more to inspire them to maybe look back in their own heritage and see what their ancestors did. There's reasons why we practice rituals and even say mantras and that repetition has a transformative power. And if they they don't have rituals of their past to create rituals because I do believe prolonged grief. And especially now that it's diagnosed and in the DSM, um, I do believe prolonged grief will be a repercussion of the pandemic. And so if we can give this movement through our hands and our actions, it gives grief room to breathe and to move and to leave us. Could
1: you give us examples of simple rituals that you feel somebody who's mourning or grieving could do?
2: Sure. And, you know, uh, grief authors have noted that there has been a decline in rituals in modern Western cultures. And it's because we're so fast paced and we're not taking the time to stop and do things. But for instance, for me, you know, my dad's preferred beverage was. A cup of black coffee no matter where we went or what we we're doing he needed that black coffee so every morning when i'm getting ready for work i brew a fresh cup of black coffee and i put it by his picture and then i get ready for my day just to say hey dad here's your coffee and then i drink the coffee and i go to work and so they don't have to be these grand things they can be simple things that we do every day yeah. uh, in indian culture we always have um our deceased loved ones picture up we light a candle by the picture we keep fresh flowers weekly by the picture. So just small things that remind you that this person lived, uh, that they were important, and that they live on through through what you're doing.
1: That's really powerful. In part two of that book, you, you speak about showing. Can you talk more about that part?
2: So showing is actually introducing the second book. So uh, within my thesis, I was the researcher and the participant. And so... <laughs> I tested my storytelling theory on myself and I wrote 41 stories before, during and after my father's death to show the cultural interactions that I endured because I, again, I was doing an autoethnography and autoethnography actually uh, originates from anthropology. So you're trying to understand how culturally and um, socially society is interacting with grief. And uh, as I said, my interactions um were quite tragic, actually, I would say, because I couldn't find the support I needed properly until eventually I found a grief support group, um, you know, people like you that are willing to support and help. Um, So the showing aspect is me show. So in the first book, it is how I've organized the stories. And in the second book, I am, through storytelling, showing and evoking emotion in the reader and in very detailed description um not just telling as was the first part but actually showing what happened and um so that leads into the analysis of the stories which is the third part
1: well that we'll take a little break and we'll be right back Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Soled and We continue our conversation with Dr. Matthew. Uh, You speak about, uh, in your second book, the title is The Revelations of Epen." Could you talk more about that?
2: Yes, absolutely. So the title actually in one of my last conversations with my dad, he he knew I was a, I am a writer. He was also a writer. He was also an English teacher in India and trained me to write at a very young age and and I had published some work, uh, you know, academically, and he requested I I write a book. And the revelation of my father's name is Ebran. And uh, the title he left me with was The Revelations of Epen. And I, I'm not sure where it came from. Uh, I think it was uh, spiritually received. That is how I started this whole process. I just had this one title and I had to figure out now what to do with it. And so in the end, it all makes clear sense. But essentially, the 41 stories are referred to as revelations. So there's 41 revelations um, that were given through me throughout my bereavement. So the 41 revelations are split into different parts, um, in the beginning, in the middle, and in the end, and then a year of first. So I'm moving through his death. Uh, I go into detail about his illness and the experiences we had in the hospital, the experiences, you know, there's positives as well, like our community gathered right away, as I said. Um, and then as I move into a year of first. Um, when the shock starts to subside and I realize that, yes, he did in fact die uh, and the suffering I endured because of that. When I entered the doctorate program, I I really tried to remove myself from the work, actually. I I was uh, very conscious not to include myself because of how emotional it was. But but luckily my doctoral supervisor, his name is Dr. Ian Winchester, uh, who is a wonderful man, uh, pushed me. To include myself, he kept asking me, "Well, where's your story? Where's your story?" And so he almost forced me to stand up in front of my colleagues and and talk about my dad, which was very emotional, yeah. but also very powerful. And so with his conversations, we decided that I would be the participant of the study. And so when I started writing the stories, I only had fourteen. Mm-hmm. Ah, that's what I was going to say because my my dad passed away on the fourteenth. So all the numbers even the 41 stories. So he died at 141. So everything revolved around him, which research shows that there's a theme to the stories. Uh, It actually produces more healing. And so when someone's reading through the book, it's very relevant, it's very relevant and um, visible that the theme always comes back to my dad. Mm. And so I started out with 14 stories and they were, probably the experiences I knew that I was experiencing PTSD from. So for instance, watching him take his last breath. And so I wrote through those first and they were just very short pieces. And then when my supervisor asked me, well, how many stories do you think you can write uh, or do you imagine writing? And so that's when I gravitated toward that 41. And I said, I think I can make 41 stories out of this. And so the second version was writing those 41 out. And, um, you know, the pandemic hit and I had a lot of time alone. Um, And as as we see on the news, it was a very creative time for many people. And so I sat and I wrote all 41 stories out in, in just over a month, I think it took me. And then I started to look at the stories through the lens of therapeutic writing and making sure that I had included advice from past researchers and uh, rewrote the stories again and then something it was more whole but something was still missing and so I started to read more about autoethnography I delved back in and I said well there's something that that's just not quite right and then I realized you know when it comes to storytelling I was just telling the story of his death and that doesn't really show why my grief was so profound and so i realized that i needed to tell the story of our whole life together so i rewrote all 41 stories again but this time i included short memories of me and my dad throughout our whole time of 31 years and then by that time the stories were officially a book and they were officially whole and complete and then after the 41 stories were written I went into the analysis. I used an approach called narratives under analysis where you stand back as a researcher and you look through the look at the stories through a scientific lens and from that so I coded all 41 stories and I realized that certain themes were emerging. I was I was writing the same things in multiple stories. Hmm. So, for instance, I was using—I was actually embedding grief theories right into the stories. So, for instance, the five stages of grief or the tests of mourning, um, continuing bonds was was a huge theory that kept reappearing. And so, as the researcher, my analysis split into two. So, the art of storytelling. Um, so the structure of the stories, like I mentioned, the theme, the drafting of the stories I mentioned, I did four drafts, revising the, and editing the story. So as an English teacher, I had to make sure everything was correct. Uh, <laughs> but that actually helped me. Not only did it spark my memory to write more because I was traumatized. I lost a lot of um, knowledge of what actually happened. But then the more I started to write and revise, the more came back to me. And that was very important towards the healing and the language that I used. So within the stories you'll see that I used my parents' language, I had written it in English, uh, because the dialogue should be authentic. And so the things my father said should have been the way he said them to me. So I'd have it in our languages called Malayalam and then I'd write it in English as well. Um, and so a lot of that was already prevalent in, in therapeutic writing. Research. And so my addition is specifically to bereavement and grief. And so I called that the four story, uh, the four cornerstones of storytelling. And so those four cornerstones were that I was building relationships with the other characters and switching perspectives, which is also part of um, James Pennebaker's work. Mm. But not only was I switching perspectives, I had to write the stories with their reactions and responses to grief in mind. Mm. So for instance, um, conflict that occurred between me and my brother, and even me and my mother, um, you know, the family dynamics changes. And when you're losing a loved one, it's not pleasant. And so I had to re-examine those interactions through their reactions and responses to grief. Were they doing this to hurt me or were they doing it because, you know, my mother's husband and my dad's father were dying and and they were reacting through grief. And so when when I started to look at the story that way, obviously you build compassion and empathy for the other person. And the second cornerstone was... um, that blueprint of grief. So as I said, I noticed that I was bringing grief theories and models right into the writing. And so when I'm working with students, I'm ensuring that they're doing the same. And the next was uh, strengthening spiritual health. So again, not necessarily a religious component, and in my case it was, but making sure that yours and your family's values and beliefs aligned with your story of loss so yes, my father died, it was horrible, it was, it was terribly tragic for me. But in the end, I saw how his story and the way that it ended aligned with our values and beliefs and even carrying out those rituals and making sure he had ceremonious closure. Uh, those were important to embed within the stories. And the last cornerstone was leaving that lasting legacy. So I have these 41 stories, they're very detailed. I can carry my father with me for the rest of my days. Um, And so when we create this hard copy almost version of someone, you know, a big component of grief is that we're going to forget that person. We're going to forget what they sound like when they laughed or we're going to forget their mannerisms. But because I was so detailed in the story, when I read it, it brings him alive for me again. And it also makes sure that I was using what I went through to help other people. So it's creating a legacy and leaving a lasting impression. So that was the analysis of my storytelling procedure. And I have to make sure that when I'm supporting others to write the stories, that they're written in a certain way. You can't just write and leave it. You actually have to construct a coherent story.
1: Well, that would take a little break and we'll be right back.
0: If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264. Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at NAMI.org.
1: My name is Solebem, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We continue our conversation with Dr. Matthew. Uh, As you were talking earlier, a few things stood out for me. Uh, Your relationship with your father, um, such a special, special relationship. But also in your writing, uh, your ability to be, you know, to be in and then to step out and reflect, and and pull out these amazing themes. I think your writing on grief is a major contribution to the field of grief, and I think it's going to help a lot of people. Uh, in the nature of stories, I think uh, storytelling has been a big part of your healing process, and your book you've written a lot of stories in there. Could you share uh, some of uh, a couple of the stories from the revelation of Epen?
2: Yes, I will read one story. So as I mentioned earlier, I picked events that were still uh, traumatizing for me that were, you know, waking me up in the middle of the night. The uh, events that needed to be processed and released. So this story is called The Last Smile. Uh, It's right before I had to take my father to the ICU. The Last Smile. I was startled awake to the sound of tremors running through my father's body. Scanning the room, I found two nurses pinning him down as he shook uncontrollably, convulsing against the metal bed frame. Using the arms of the bed to catapult his direction, I sprang from my cot and landed beside him. Grabbing his forearms, I held him in place as the doctor held my stricken stare. We need to take him to the ICU. If we don't put him on life support now, he will die. We need family consent to do this. Do I have your permission? Comprehending that I was the only family member in the room, I consented as the words he will die pulsed through my veins. My mind gyrating trapped the rest of the doctor's counsel in a revolving door, unable to reach me. I stepped out into the corridor while the staff shifted my father's rattling body onto a mobile bed. Adrenaline filled my fingertips as I attempted to find the contact home on my phone. Dazed and confused, my mother's voice quivered while she caught up to the words "life support." In a panic, she wailed out in her native tongue, de elam How is my child doing this all by herself? Then, as fast as her tension spiked, her scattered thoughts slowed down, agreeing to the terms laid out in front of her to save her husband's life. She settled long enough to form the words, I'm on my way. Clutching my father's hand, we entered the elevator alongside the doctor and three other medical professionals. I resisted the urge to spiral into an anxious fit, but the large metal doors closed tight, adding to my suffocation. Silence engulfed the small space around us. All that could be heard were the sobs of tears helplessly spilling from my eyes. I tried to compose myself, but I could feel the sadness rising in the people standing next to me. As we entered the long stretch of the hallway leading to the ICU, I begged them to wait, pleading, my family is not here yet. The doctor reiterated, the longer we wait, the worse it will be for him. My heart split, the larger portion pulled in my father's direction. Just as they started rolling him away from me, my mother appeared. Suddenly, in front of me was nothing short of a scene from an Indian movie, a plot twist that seemed far too stretched to resemble anything even close to reality. But here it was. My mother, with her arm overextended, ran toward my father, screaming, Mocha, her lifelong term of endearment for him. As if on cue, synchronously, his convulsions stopped. Sitting up straight, following the sound of her voice, he zoned in on her. Tightening his fists, he fought to sit still and looked longingly at her. Then, joy, embodied in a smile, joined us. A smile curving so far upward that his lips lit his eyes aglow. A smile so vibrant that I'd never seen a man look at a woman like that before. A smile that told a story. I was waiting for you. I needed to see you. I needed to hear your voice one last time before I go. And so their perfect ending was also written. He never said a word to her, but no words were needed after praise like that. As always, my father's heart spoke volumes. It was the purest form of love I had ever seen. In my early 20s, my mother and I clashed. Whether it was over the money I spent, the clothes I wore, or the time I wasted loitering around with my friends, our opinions always differed. Often, her position on things led me to create full-blown arguments, and whenever my irritation grew, I always sought refuge in my father. Dad, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around what Mom said to me. I'm going to say something to her about it. After a long-waited pause, my father replied, Lenita, your mother has worked tirelessly for all of us. She has taken on two jobs, worked double shifts, and picked up overtime whenever she can. She works so much that she doesn't get proper rest, which sometimes makes her say things she doesn't mean. But we are all indebted to her. If something were to happen to her, what will we do? Keep that in mind the next time you want to complain about insignificant things. Ignore her frustrations and stay silent. Make sure your words don't affect her health. This is the least you can do to repay her endless sacrifices. My father opened a window into the love he carried for my mother and that breath of air permanently changed my actions and never left my system.
1: Mm. Wow.
2: Yeah. So you see, uh, I talked about the situation. I tried to find, you know, we, we say find a silver lining quite a bit, but mm. you really have to find the benefit in that day. And the fact that, him and my mom had that moment and bringing that forward and reminding myself of the beauty that did happen alongside the tragedy was very important. And to also be honest with my own actions. And and I talked about that short memory at the end was, you know, me and my mom clashing and then my dad reminding me, you know, how to behave. Um, so each memory actually aligns with the story that I've written.
1: That is powerful, powerful. Mm -hmm. And, uh, if you're listening, I really encourage you to get Linida's book, The Revelations of Epen. I think uh, stories like that are really powerful. Talk to us about the importance of storytelling through sadness. I think many people feel like I, I can only tell these stories when I'm happy. Mm-hmm, and, um, mm-hmm. and sometimes we miss the mark. But storytelling right. through your sadness is, is a powerful component.
2: Right. And so that's the title that I use when working with students just because grief is so complex. And, and I feel that when I talk with children, sadness is what comes up mostly. Mm. And I'm planning on when I create a a kind of a book for not a book, but a workbook for adults. I I was navigating through storytelling through your sorrow. So it's a little bit more complex. Um, But for children, to allow them to have space, hold space for their sadness, and allow their sadness to breathe. And so, because that is the prominent emotion that comes through for them as children, um, finding a way, as I said, children are uh, already magnetized towards storytelling. So, finding a way for them to tell the story of why they're sad and to find that benefit and switch perspective and to explore the loss that they're feeling so that they too can feel that relief.
1: But it is hard to, you know, to, to, especially through sorrow.
2: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah,
1: how can someone who is going through this deep sorrow uh, Mm -hmm. of, of, you know, the loss of a loved one, how could they push through to be able to tell those stories in that space while they're sitting in that deep sorrow?
2: In my experience, you know, you always have to, when working with the bereaved, you always have to move according to their personality. But I will tell you, in my experience, it's not, it's very rare that someone doesn't want to tell the story. You know, you're carrying around a lot of sadness and a lot of um, tragedy within your body. And typically, when you hold that space for someone, they will walk through the door. If you open the door, They'll walk through, and so my job as a teacher, or you know, I I will be holding a session for psychologists. So their job as a you know professional practitioner is to open the door and to um, lead the bereaved into the story. And once they start telling the story, they're they're pretty good at at, at pushing through and going to the end. Um, So the first time, you always want to allow them to tell the story however they like. Mm. They have to speak as they are and where they are. And then my job is to shape and mold the story to fit the requirements of the analysis.
1: You've written two books through this um, difficult moment. Mm -hmm. What do you think your dad uh, would say to you?
2: You know, I've thought about this quite a lot, actually. And I don't hear him saying anything at all. I hear him laughing. We <laughs> <laughs> had a very contagious laugh. Yeah. And I think, you know, he's saying, see, I gave you the title and look what you did. And I just hear him laughing.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's
1: really powerful. Uh, mm-hmm. You spoke about here in the Western culture, after the funeral, um, the person is grieving or mourning. Uh, the social networks uh, almost diminishes. Now, right. if there's somebody is listening now, and and a friend has lost a father or a mother, and they're mm-hmm. wondering how can I not be that person that disappears after the funeral? How? What kind of support uh, would a friend provide in this difficult moment after the funeral?
2: I do. Ha- have a lot of people asking me that question how how can we grieve effectively and so in the first book I I give this answer that um we grieve effectively by teaching our surrounding community how to companion grief effectively yeah and a lot of people they they you know they're not avoiding the bereaved because they don't care they're avoiding because they are there's fear about saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing. And so I tell people, you don't have to say anything at all. Just be present. Be present with the person. Let them talk. Um, you know, it's, it's very important in the way that we approach our, our health and making sure that we're not making it about us. It's very interesting. A lot of people want to make the grief process about themselves. And this is how I think you should grieve, rather than saying, you know, how can I support the way you want to grieve, mm. whether it's keeping pictures up or or keeping things or removing things. And, uh, you know, it's actually very important in, in the book I talk about. There's healing power in in the things of the deceased and holding on to those things and, and making sure that we're using them to help process the pain. And, uh, you know, there was a study in this book called A General Theory on Love. Um, about these pups these rat pups that uh, were placed in a in a, um kind of an incubator and the mother was removed and when the mother was removed all the babies went into this psychos or not psychosomatic but a somatic disarray and the researchers found that man-made solutions were not working so increasing the temperature providing light um even food but when they had wrapped the mother in a blanket and then put the blanket in the cage, the, the baby started to settle, right? And so the belongings of the deceased can help our body calm down. And I think that's very important. So when people were telling me, well, I think you should get rid of his things. Mm. I said, no, I don't think so at all, because those are the only things that were bringing me comfort and um, helping my anxiety decrease. And now, you know, that I've healed, um, of course, I still have my father's things, but I don't feel like I need to clutch onto them like I used to. So everything in their own time.
1: What are your final thoughts?
2: I hope together as a community, especially in modern North American culture, we can make grief visible again. We can grieve communally as social beings, as we are supposed to, and. We can bring grief work and grief education into the classroom. If we can start with children at a young age, as they move through life, not only will it be easier for them, uh, but they will effectively companion grief for their friends or family members when the time comes.
1: How can our listeners get a hold of you and a hold of your book?
2: Uh, so the books, if you Google my name, Lenita and Matthew, they come up right away. They're on my publisher's website, Dio Press, so uh, slash life and that actually will take you. We'll link to both books, and then they're also on Amazon. But you have to use my name again because the title is incorrect on one, and they're fixing it. But if you use my name, the the both will come up, the paperback and the hardback, and um, hopefully. The Revelations of Epen should be out by the end of this month.
1: Thank you very much.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: That was our guest, Dr. Matthew. She's written two incredible books, please. If you have a chance, get a copy. And thank you very
0: much for listening. This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. This episode was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Julia, Illinois. You can find our podcast everywhere podcasts are available. If you enjoy listening to the show, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com.